Good morning. Oh, come on. You guys are louder than that. Good morning. Who is worthy? Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'd like to tell you a story, perhaps one you've already heard. It's about four chemistry majors at a university that decided to take a road trip just prior to taking their finals as seniors. Well, due to their extended partying, if you will, they were late in getting back to campus. Well, they missed their chemistry final exam. So they decided to tell a professor that they had a flat tire and they would like to take the makeup exam as soon as possible. Well, the professor graciously agreed. Now, when the students came to the classroom and walked in, each desk was in one of the four corners of the uh, uh, classroom there, so they all took their place, and he said, now you may begin, turn your exam over. When they turned it over, there was only one question on the entire exam. You know what it was? Which tire? <laughs> Needless to say, they went into a critical time. Now, that word critical, Webster gives many definitions of that word. I'd like to share two of them with you this morning. One definition, an unstable or crucial time or state of affairs in which a decisive change is impending, especially one with a distinct possibility of a highly undesirable outcome. The second one, a situation that has reached a critical phase. And I imagine that as those young men looked at that question, they're facing a situation with a good possibility of an undesirable outcome. Now, perhaps you've had a crisis of your own these past few days. Perhaps you have lost a set of car keys or house keys. Maybe a relational conflict within your family or at work. Or about a car accident. And for the students among us, how about forgetting to study for a pop quiz or your final exams coming up soon? Or one of a thousand other tension-building circumstances. Now, most of these crises fail in comparison when we're talking about acts of violence, economic downturns, or social decay in our communities. These crises, however, fade before global crises such as war. Now, all these crises are important, and they can cause a lot of tension and worry and anxiety in us, but the crisis that constitutes the focus of our text this morning is much bigger. The focus from chapter 4 into 5, now the focus changes from the central figure on the throne and the worshipers to an inscribed book or scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, which is God. Thus the crisis, who is worthy to open the book? A crisis so near and dear to John that he begins to weep greatly over the search to find one who is worthy to open that book. Let's look back at verse 1. John tells us he saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, the interesting thing here is the Greek word that's translated in literally means upon. So here's the picture. He's not holding a book 
like this. Now how I grip the book? It's more of an open palm like that in which God the Father is holding the book. It's an invitation to grasp the message of the book. And it's a, clearly a communication from God himself. There, Here's that book sitting there. And it's in his right hand. And the right hand is a symbol or symbolizes power and authority. For example, Exodus chapter 15, verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Again in Psalm 48, verse 10. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Listen, your right hand is full of righteousness. And as we just read, what does he have in his hand? A book or a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Another interesting point I'd like to share with you. The English word Bible is derived from the Greek word biblion. It's usually translated as scroll. So some of your translations will call this a book. Other translations will call it a scroll. And it was written on papyrus, which is a paper-like material made from the reed of a plant. Now, sheets of papyrus were glued on edge until the desired length, 30 feet being the maximum, and then rolled up. Now, most of the time, the writing was on the inside of the scroll. When you rolled it up, you could not see it. However, in certain important documents, there was writing on the outside. For example, like a table of contents. Official documents were sealed. Usually wax placed on the place where the scroll ended. So if this was the end of the scroll, they would take wax and they would take a stamp, use a signet ring, and they'd stamp it. And that's to protect, to protect the, what's inside. It also would show its legal binding. Now, according to Roman law, a testament was sealed with seven seals by seven witnesses before its legality could be established. Seven also indicates it was completely closed and its contents inaccessible. Now we get to chapter 6 in a few weeks. The scroll is only partially open with the breaking of each seal. So I don't have a scroll with me today, but if Jesus unrolled the scroll, it probably came to a certain point. Then he'd break the other seal, unroll it more, break the third seal, so on and so forth. We'll get to that in chapter 6. So what's exactly is the contents of this document? It gives authority and power to its recipient to enact God's final purpose. It contains the climax of God's purposes to reward his people to give them inheritance, and it condemns the wicked. It's the scroll of destiny. It's the world's destiny. What's going to happen? How is God going to wrap all this up? That's what's in this scroll, this book. And he says in verse 2, I saw a strong or mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. By that way, the, the word loud is the Greek word mega. And you know what mega means, don't you? Don't you want know to mega size that? It's huge. It's loud. So when he spoke, it was with a really loud voice. Now, we don't know exactly why a strong or mighty angel is needed here. It appears two other times. The presentation of the little scroll or the book in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And the announcement of the destruction of Babylon, chapter 18, verse 21. It seems that this strong or mighty angel... It's critical in times when the narrative introduces key events. But look at the question. 
With a loud voice, he asked this question. Who is worthy to open the book or the scroll and to break its seals? The question itself suggests that most will be excluded due to their lack of unworthiness. Not so much a moral or spiritual worthiness, although that is included. It's rather an inherent sufficiency that enables a being to perform an act like opening the scroll or the book. In other words, who has the authority to take this book out of the right hand of God the Father who sits on the throne? That's the question. That's my question to you. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Look at verse 3. Critical moment. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to break its seals. Notice the comprehensive nature of this inability. No being has the authority to open the book or to look into it. No angel, no human, no creature whatsoever. Not Abraham, Samuel, David, Peter, nor Paul. Not Caesar, Augustus, Napoleon, nor Eisenhower. Not Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, or Pope John Paul. Not H.D. Rockefeller, nor Bill Gates. No one in all creation throughout the ages is found worthy to open the book. That would be real sad if the text ended there. Would not you agree? We'd all be wondering this morning, well, who is worthy? How do you know what's going to happen? Before we answer that, I want to remind you that we live in an age where people want to be self-made. We want to pull ourselves up our own bootstraps, if you will. We can feel we can forge our own destiny without God. John Dewey, who was an American philosopher from 1859, he passed away in 1952, once wrote, quote, Man is capable if he will exercise the required courage, intelligence, and effort of shaping his own fate. End of quote. Do you agree with that? That's another sermon in itself right there. Now, Simone Weil, she was a French philosopher from 1909. She passed away in 1943. This is what she remarked about humanism, because that's what John Dewey's talking about. Humanism, mankind can find the answer if he just would get smart enough and to change things, he can provide a better destiny. She said about humanism was, quote, was not wrong in thinking that truth, beauty, liberty, and equality are an infinite value, but in thinking that man can get there for himself without grace, end the quote. Now, she was agnostic, and she said that, that she would say without grace. But here's the point. If we're going to find the purposes that God has for us or for you, the grand gift of all he wants our lives to be, what he desires, we need help because we cannot open the book, if you will, by ourselves. If you haven't figured this out already, you cannot do it by yourself. You will fail and fail miserably. I tried. I'm not going to air all my dirty laundry out this morning, but I tried. Everything I tried led to the same destination. Pain, misery, and destruction. The world has promised you something that it cannot produce. Only God can. 
Look at verse 4. In response to not finding anybody, John says, Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy. Now, some translations will render that weep bitterly or wept much. The emphasis is on the continuation of the weeping. Apparently, this went on for some time. Because the the further and more futile the search became, the more John wept. This guy is crying. He is weeping because no one is found worthy to open the book. G.B. Card, in his work, The Revelation of St. John of the Vine, comments about this. He writes, quote, These are not tears of the prophet thwarted his expectation of seeing into the future. His frustration goes deeper than that. Until the scroll is open, God's purposes remain not merely unknown but unaccomplished. John weeps with a disappointment because of the hope of God's actions appears to be indefinitely postponed for the lack of an agent through whom God may act. End of quote. I use that because that really sums up what's going here. He's not just weeping because the scroll can't be opened. He's weeping because God's purposes seem to be halted at this point. You have to remember that John was a Jew. He was brought up in the messianic hope of the Old Testament. That one day God would assume his kingly power and reign upon the earth, punishing the wicked and redressing the wrongs of the oppressed. That's what he was looking forward to. And now he has this book that's sealed up with God's going to do and no one is found worthy to open it. Now, especially in the midst of persecutions, God's people long for that day that will bring an end to their sufferings and vindicate their faith. Thus, as stated in the direction, this is a crisis. But thankfully, as I said earlier, the passage does not end. Let me ask you a question. Are you looking forward to that day when all this will cease to exist? Are you looking forward to the day when the Lord returns and there will be no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow? Sin will be totally eradicated. Are you looking forward to that day when you'll be reunited with your loved ones who have gone on before? Are you looking forward to that day when you'll look at Jesus in his true, awesome glory and power as he really is, not coming in on a donkey in human flesh, but riding on a white horse as triumphant king and messiah? Are you looking forward to that day? I am. And that's the reason John is weeping. I want to know. And look at verse 5. Those 24 elders that we read about earlier, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. John's sorrow is now interrupted by one of the 24 elders who said, what did he say? Stop weeping. Behold the line that is from the tribe of Judah. Now in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, Judah receives the prophecy that he would be like a lion, a ruler who would overcome his enemies by his overwhelming power. The lion was a symbol for the tribe of Judah. And the lion is usually recognized in the various cultures to be the king of the beasts, an emblem of strength, majesty, courage, and intellectual excellence. Not only is he a lion from the tribe of Judah, but also talks about the root of David. And that reference is based upon Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 10, where a messianic prophecy foretold the rising of one who is both the root and the offspring of David. 
This is a messianic statement concerning Jesus as well as a claim for his deity. How can he both be the root and the offspring at the same time? Well, let's go to the New Testament, shall we? In Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, Jesus stumps the Pharisees with the question, whose son is the Christ? Now, that word Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Literally in the Greek, it says Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. And of course, being trained and knew the law, they would say, well, the Messiah would be the son of David. But then Jesus asked this question, and he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1 here. Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? And he concludes, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? The Pharisees never thought of that before. They couldn't answer him. And in Matthew 22, verse 46, it says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. Our text this morning answers the question, it's the doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ and his incarnation. He is the root from which David springs or himself arises, and the Messiah is the offspring of David through his incarnation, because Jesus, the Son, was there with the Father with creation. So he precedes David, but he's also David's offspring because when he, in his incarnation, took on human flesh, he was the line of David. Deaths are fulfilling both the root and offspring of David. So right there in that statement is telling us, when we talk about Jesus was born, he wasn't, okay, yes, he was born in the human flesh, but he's always existed, always has, and always will. And this is another scripture that's telling us about his eternity and his incarnation, how he fulfills both those things. And in verse 5, because he's the line from Judah and the root of David, he has overcome so as to open the book or the scroll in its seven seals. That word overcome should jar your memory a little bit. That's the same word that's used of the people in the seven letters to the seven churches back in chapters 2 and 3. The reference here is to his atonement and resurrection. Because of those accomplishments, he has been deemed entirely able and worthy to open the book and to break its seals. He and he alone, nobody else, can take the book or the scroll and to open it. And in chapter 6, we'll find out what happens when each of those seals are broken. But here's something I want you to get if you don't hear anything else this morning. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus approaching him while he was in the Jordan River that day? What did John say? Or he proclaimed this. He saw Jesus walking to him. Now, Jesus is going to get baptized by John. But he sees Jesus. What did he say? Do you remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is also the line of the tribe of Judah who will judge the world in righteousness. The one who came the first time with gentleness and love will someday come with justice and judgment from above. Here's a question. God, in his word, has told us he is so loving that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to become to repentance. He loves people. He loves you. 
But also God cannot justify his character. Sin has to be punished. So how is God going to demonstrate that he loves everyone, but at the same time demonstrate that sin will be dealt with and that he will have to pour out his wrath upon sin? Look behind me. That's the answer. On the cross, Jesus became the emblem of God's love by offering his own life, the perfect sacrifice, demonstrating God's love for each and every one of us, but at the same time demonstrating God's wrath upon sin. There at the cross, we see both on display. Jesus overcame through his sacrificial death and his resurrection. John is weeping the crisis moment. Who is worthy? Who is able? The line from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He alone has authority due to the sacrificial death on the cross. He alone is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. Which begs the question to you. How will you overcome when you face crisis in this life? You know, it's always been said that there's only three stages in life. Either you're about to go through a storm, or you're in the middle of a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. There's crisis that happen to us every day. Every day. Some of us will face crisis as soon as we leave this room this morning. Jesus is the only way that you and I can have victory. He's the only one that can save your soul. You can't do it yourself. You can't be good enough. I've said this before. You ever try to keep the... You know what the Ten Commandments are, right? You ever told a lie? One of the Ten Commandments, don't bear false witness. That's one down. You ever use God's holy name as a filthy cuss word and you're mad or someone cuts you off in traffic? I've done that. Do not take the Lord's God's name in vain. Ever looked at a member of the opposite sex and lusted after him or her? Well, it says you cannot commit adultery, but Jesus says if you do that, you commit adultery in your heart already. That's just three out of a ten. It ain't looking so good. The book of James tells if you break one, you break them all. If I stand before God on that day, I'm found guilty. Where will I go, heaven or hell? You answer the question. You know, we go to hell. But praise be to God. Jesus took my place. And because of him, my righteousness is found in him. And it's imputed upon me. And like my brother Roger just stated just a few moments ago, why should I let you in? He paid the price. Or the son saying to the father, he's one of mine, father, let him in. That's the only way you're going to go into heaven. You can't earn your way. You can't get brownie points. Attending church, let me back that up. You don't attend church, you are the church. Just coming on a Sunday does not get you in. You have to belong to him. Do you know him? This victory that we have, I'd like to encourage you with this last passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 58. Apostle Paul writing, 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Do you know this one? Have you gave your life to him? Can I ask you a question that Jesus asked his disciples? He first asked, he asked the same question, but two different ways. First, he asked him, who do people say that I am? They've been on the street. Some people think, most people think you're a prophet, perhaps Elijah or John the Baptist. Most people agree you're a prophet. But then he asked the same question, but in a more personal way. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question that I pose to you today. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the Christ? Is he the anointed one? Is he the Messiah? If you answer affirmative and say yes, does your life bear that out? by what you say and what you do. If you've never done that, then I invite you to come just a few moments and cry out to him. Don't have to worry about getting cleaned up good enough. You just come as you are and he will do that for you. I cannot stress this enough. I implore you by the graces, grace and the mercies of God, be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. I beseech you to do that. If there's anything in your relationship that's causing you to not experience God in a full way, and even now you feel some conviction going on, would you come and confess? Confess to simply agree with God that yes, I've sinned against you. Time is growing short. Eternity is hanging in the balance. Where are you going to go? And only you can answer for you. It can't be a mom's answer. It can't be your friend's answer, your husband or your wife. What do you say? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. I'll sum it up like this. The reason I do what I do, because I believe Jesus to be the Christ. He is the Messiah. That's the reason I do what I do. Would I like to see more people come? Of course I would. Because I was given a gift that I do not deserve. A precious gift. And I took it and I received it. You can be yours too. And I firmly believe with everything that I am that God's calling some of you into a deeper walk with him. Perhaps calling you into vocational ministry somewhere. Future missionary future Sunday school teacher, and yes, a future preacher. He's not looking for the bright and the best. Look at me. But he's looking for someone who will step up and say, I believe who you are, and I will do exactly what you tell me to do. What say you? Heavenly Father, 
we thank you for this time we've had with each other and with you. And I know you're not done yet. I know you're still moving amongst us, speaking to each and every one of us. Father, I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice that they respond to you. They respond to the voice of truth. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You made the way. You made the way possible that we can have eternity with you and the Father. I pray that you knock down our pride, that you will humble us, and we may bow the knee and declare Jesus is Lord. Do whatever you need to do, O oh God. We are your willing servants. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?